This is Localization Today, a podcast from Multilingual Media, covering the most relevant daily news in the language industry. Past tense. The pen and the voice. Language and the voyage of Magellan. By Iwandro Magales, conference interpreter, former chief interpreter in the United Nations system, interpreter trainer, and language technology advocate. He is a TEDx speaker and the author of three books, including The Language Game. Upon setting sail from the Spanish port of Seville in 1519, at the head of his Armada of the Moluccas, Ferdinand Magellan was unsure of just what to expect. He had a hunch that sailing west would take him to the Spice Islands. He was also confident he could find the fabled maritime passage through the continents claimed by the two competing seafaring superpowers of the time. A few decades earlier, under pressure from the Catholic rulers of Spain, the Pope had drawn an imaginary line on the map from pole to pole and split the world in two. Spain was granted exclusive rights to territories west of the Divide, with Portugal expected to keep to the east. The deal was sealed in the small Spanish town of Tordesillas in 1494. Dismissed by King Manuel of Portugal, to whom he first pitched the idea of an expedition, a humiliated Magellan crossed the border into Spain, where he got the attention of Charles I, then in his teens. When Magellan authoritatively declared that the Spice Islands lay in the Spanish hemisphere and that he knew how to get there, the monarch was sold and granted the Portuguese navigator a full-fledged armada. If his fleet could make it to the Indies, he would know how to return by sailing around Africa, using the route established years before by Vasco da Gama. He could go down in history as the first man to circumnavigate the globe. Magellan had a different goal in mind, though. He wanted to establish a reliable western route to the spices that grew in the east. Used as seasonings, food preservatives, and aphrodisiacs, these exotic commodities were worth many times their weight in gold. With as little as a sack of cloves, a sailor could buy a house, settle down on a good pension, and never leave port again. On September 20, 1519, the Armada of the Moluccas headed into the unknown. Magellan gathered the best technological and human resources available, leaving port with a flotilla of five ships loaded with provisions, hoping for the best in an uncertain voyage. Under his command sailed a contingent of 260 men seduced by the promise of fortune and glory, their only chance to escape a miserable existence. The captain-general knew he would be up against more than just the ferocity of the southern seas. He had dared to question pseudo-religious believers convinced that Magellan, in spite of his conviction, was attempting the impossible. Sailing southwest, the Armada soon made a pleasant landfall in the tropics. As they proceeded south, any waterway leading inland was explored in search of the canal. As the weather worsened and provisions dwindled, the Spaniards grew sour. The crew resented having a Portuguese at the helm. Facing the prospect of a long winter, their impatience started to mount. That pent-up anger eventually escalated into full-blown mutiny when they reached what is now Porta San Julian, in modern-day Argentina. With the help of a few loyal whistleblowers, Magellan was able to anticipate and crush the revolt. He did so with unspeakable cruelty. Mutineers were marooned, eviscerated alive were dismembered, their heads and limbs scattered through the five ships as a warning. 
Sour at the captain's brutality, the crew of the San Antonio defected back to Spain, carrying with it most of the provisions. And during a reconnaissance journey, the Santiago ran aground. On November 1, Magellan started exploring a promising westward navigable seaway. Twenty-seven freezing days later, the three remaining ships emerged into the quiet waters of what he called Mar Pacifico, the Pacific Ocean. The legendary strait connecting east and west had been found and crossed. The ordeal was just starting. It would take them 98 days to see dry land again, and by the time they did, scurvy and famine had claimed the lives of dozens of seamen. After replenishments and repairs in modern-day Guam, the fleet advanced into what would later be the Philippines. To everyone's surprise, Magellan's slave Enrique, acquired in a journey to Malacca eight years earlier and brought along as an interpreter, could easily communicate with the rulers and natives in the various islands. With Enrique's linguistic support and the imposing thunder of cannons, Magellan had no trouble claiming a few islands for Spain. But when he tried to convert Chieftain Lapu-Lapu to Christianity by force, his fate was sealed on the island of Mictan. Shallow waters kept the ships away and cannon shots out of range. Overconfident and severely outnumbered, Magellan was brutally killed. Another eight Europeans perished that same day. His master dead, Enrique was now free. He was also home. If the slave was actually from the Cebu region, as his command of the local language seemed to indicate, the first man to circumnavigate the world was actually an interpreter. With Magellan gone, Sebastián Elcano, one of the mutineers, and other, less experienced pilots were reassigned as captains and tasked with finding their way back home through a complicated maze of islands. More than sail, they would need to talk their way through waters dominated by the Portuguese and immersed in languages totally unfamiliar to them. Not surprisingly, the new crew refused to release the interpreter. Enrique was not having it. Disgruntled, he turned to Raja Humabon, the ruler of Cebu, and plotted a conspiracy. He convinced the Raja that disguised under the Europeans' amicable attitude was an imperialistic plan to loot their land, depose the local ruler, and eventually claim their riches for Spain. He should lure them ashore, entrap them, and eliminate their threat. They had a plan. Back on the ship, Enrique shared the news that the Raja wanted to offer a farewell banquet to his new European friends that evening. There would be plenty of food, women, booze, and fun. About 30 Europeans attended, indulged, and drank themselves silly. They did not see it coming. Closing the soiree at the Raja's command, archers emerged from the bushes in huge numbers and killed all of their guests but one, Enrique. Short-handed and fearing for their lives, the Spaniards burned one of their vessels and resorted to raiding passing ships. Having also lost the Trinidad, the small surviving crew gathered on the Victoria and placed all their bets on their new pilot, Elcano, and their new interpreter, Antonio Pigafetta. A Venetian scholar and explorer, Antonio Pigafetta had joined the expedition in search of adventure and probably paid a hefty sum for the privilege. From day one, he kept a detailed journal of the expedition's trials and tribulations. He also compiled the first phrasebook in history with the help of Enrique. 
Filled with drawings, Pigafetta's journal provides a rich guide to the features and customs of the lands and peoples encountered during the voyage. This historic record is the only reason we can tell the story. Finally, on September 10, 1522, a battered ship docked at the port of Seville, manned by a skeleton crew of just 18 sailors. They were severely malnourished. Their teeth had fallen out, and the skin appeared to be melting off their bones. Most could hardly walk. Despite the hardships, the Victoria and what was left of its crew had made it back. And what little cargo it held was enough to turn a profit. Thank you for listening to Localization Today. To subscribe to Multilingual Magazine, go to multilingual.com slash subscribe.